Genesis chapter 3, the temptation and fall into sin. Law and gospel, Adam and Eve did not trust God's word. They thought they knew better. As a result, they were led into temptation and into sin. The result of their sin was catastrophe for themselves and the whole world. And yet God in his grace and mercy is patient, kind, loving, forgiving, and promises to fix that which they did. We often also doubt God's word, and instead of listening and trusting that he knows what's best, take things into our own hands. We often mess up when we do this and cause all kinds of problems. But the consequences of our sin were, were laid on Jesus Christ. He died for us and forgives us, and we get to go to heaven. Genesis chapter 3 really focuses on the temptation, Satan's ploys and plots and craftiness and, and how he leads us into temptation, the result of sin, and of course, God's response above all else, uh, what God, how God deals with man's sin. A little bit about the timeline. When did Genesis chapter 3 happen? Uh, we know that Adam was about 130 when he begot Seth, his third son, Seth. Cain and Abel were grown adults, uh, and Cain killed Abel before the birth of Seth. So you, so Cain and Abel must have been born at the, at the latest. They could have been born a lot earlier, but at the latest they were born when Adam was about 110, right? You give them about 20 years to grow up and uh, that to happen. Which means, and Cain and Abel, of course, come, Cain is born after Genesis chapter 3. So, Genesis chapter 3 could not have taken place any later than 110 years after the creation. The earliest is the eighth day. Uh, at the end of the seventh day, everything was still very good. God says it was very good at the end of the sixth day, but the implication is it's still very good at the end of the seventh. God rested and blessed it and called it holy. Uh, it really doesn't seem like the temptation fall happened before the seventh day. So the earliest it could have, could have happened was the the first day of the new week, one whole week of creation, and then Monday, that next day, which would be the eighth day after the beginning of the world. That would be kind of interesting if it was. The New Testament church very much talked often about the eighth day because um, that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, right? The, the week is seven days long, and Jesus rose on the first day of the new week. So if you keep counting, well, that, that would be the eighth day of the week. And uh, the early Christians often dis talked about and discussed uh, the eighth day as the day of Jesus' resurrection, the completion of God's work. They, they took it back to creation, and uh, God created the world, and he rested on the seventh. Well, now he finishes uh, the next work he has to do, our salvation, on the eighth day. And so they, they would often talk about that. If, indeed, this happens the day after uh, then there would be a, a parallel there, but we don't know for sure. The Bible just simply doesn't say how long it is. A lot of people assume that it was very shortly after the creation of Adam and Eve uh, because Adam and Eve didn't have any children yet, but we know that it's very possible that, Cain, that Adam didn't have Cain until he was 110, so there is about 100 years there where it could have taken place any time there. It doesn't really matter how long it was. The point is God created man perfectly and good, and now we have the temptation and the fall into sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis simply introduces him as the serpent, but we know from Revelation that this is Satan, the devil, that he's not actually a serpent, but he is uh, an angel who rebelled against God and fell from heaven. Uh, did he take the form of the serpent or did he possess a serpent? Uh, scripture doesn't say either way. Uh, either is a possibility. Some people wonder why Eve wasn't surprised that the serpent was talking to her. It's possible that Adam and Eve were capable of conversing to some degree with the animals before the fall. Animals certainly didn't have the intelligence uh, that we do. But this would be another argument why it might be even that very first day after the creation of the world, that eighth day, uh, because Eve hasn't been around long enough to know that the animals uh, don't usually talk to humans. Uh, so that's, that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is maybe she was surprised, but um, it doesn't really get into that in the scriptures. It doesn't really matter. Either way, Satan comes to Eve in the form of a serpent, and he tempts her. Where did Satan come from? Where did angels come from? Where did evil come from? These are some of the questions that uh, people often wonder about and ask with the introduction to, to this story. We know that the angels were created by God. God created everything. Uh, in, he created all things visible and invisible, Paul tells us. Uh, in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the, ski, the sky, the sea, and all that is in them. Uh, so clearly the angels were created by God. Probably during the six days of creation. Uh, we can't prove that beyond a doubt. There's no passage of scripture that would prove that. There is a passage there is a passage that says, In six days God created the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them. But remember that the term heavens uh, is used in the Greek and in the Hebrew, and that passage is from uh, the Hebrew, does not mean necessarily the heavens as in where God dwells. Uh, it is often a term used to mean the sky and the universe. So especially when it's used together with earth, the heavens and the earth often mean all of the universe. And so it's not necessarily, that passage is not necessarily talking about the angels. Uh, so there is no clear definitive passage that say the angels were created in the six days of creation. It's very possible that they were. It's possible also that they were created at some other point, not after, uh, but uh, possibly before. There's a passage from Job that says uh, that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the the stars of the heavens sang together. It, it seems to be referring to the angels singing, and so it seems to imply that the angels were either created on the first day or uh, before the first day, but uh, again, the, the wording is not definite. So we don't know for sure when the angels were created. We know God created them, and we know that he created them good. We also know that at some point before Genesis chapter 3, some of the angels rebelled against God, made war uh, against God and the other angels, and they were cast out of heaven. Uh, the archangel Michael fought the battle against them. And uh, God, of course, made sure that the, the good angels won. Uh, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, whatever name you want to give to him, was the leader of the bad angels. They were cast out of heaven and now Satan, in anger at God, comes to try and destroy God's new creation, man. Did God create evil? God created everything, right? So surely God created evil. That's the argument people give. But people who give such argument are misunderstanding the nature of evil. Evil isn't a thing that was created. Evil is the twisting of what God created. So God created everything good, 
And when man or when the demons or the devils use God's, what God created good for evil, bad purposes, when they twist it, that becomes evil. So it's not so much something that is created as something that God created but is twisted to wrong purposes. Uh, you can imagine a tractor or a car or some other mechanical device that, that's made well and made for one purpose. Uh, and if you misuse it, if you use it for something that it's not supposed to be used for, uh, you can often ruin or damage it. So Satan and the evil angels as well as man misuses what God creates. That's true of us today, too. Uh, for example, God created language, which is a good thing, so that we could communicate to one another and share our thoughts and feelings. We often twist or misuse God's created language to lie and deceive and trick and to do evil. Uh, it's a twisting of what God created. Verses 2 through 4. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So right away we see Satan's tactics at work, and Satan uses the same tactics on us today that he used for Eve. It worked then, and it works now. Uh, we ought to learn our lesson. We ought to learn from our mistakes, but we don't. The very first thing that Satan always attacks is God's word. If he can get us to doubt God's word, we're going to have no defense against him. We're going to have no weapon to use against his further temptations. And so Satan often attacks God's word and gets us to doubt it. He does that with Eve. Did God really say that you cannot eat from the tree in the garden? Of course, God didn't say that. Uh, he said you couldn't eat from one specific tree. But Satan twists God's word or pretends to twist God's word to make God sound unreasonable, overbearing. Oh, God doesn't want you to have any fun. He created all these trees, but he says you can't uh, eat from any of it. Satan does the same thing with with people these days saying, oh, God doesn't want you to have any fun. That's why he makes these laws. He, God says you can't touch alcohol. Did God really say you can't have any alcohol? No, God's word doesn't say that. God says God's word says not to abuse it or overuse it. So Satan uh, gets us to doubt God's word by making it seem unreasonable, unfair, often by twisting what God says uh, to extremes so that it would be, so that it is even more unfair or seem even more unfair, un more unreasonable. Uh, that's what he did to Eve here as well. Uh, Eve, as soon as she responds to the serpent, has already fallen into his temptation because instead of saying no, instead of saying you're misusing God's word, she kind of plays into his hand a little bit. We may eat of the fruit from the tree, but about the fruit in the middle of the tree, God has said you must not eat it nor touch it or you will die. Notice that she's adding to God's word. God said you shall not eat from the fruit. Uh, he never said you shall not touch it. Eve is adding to God's word. And it may seem like a harmless addition. It may even seem like a reasonable addition. Well, if we're not supposed to eat it, then uh, we shouldn't even touch it. Well, that might be a reasonable thing to do. And on a personal level, we might say, well, I'm not even going to touch it so, so that I'm not tempted. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with making it a command from God when it's not a command from God. And to say to myself, well, this is a sin, and so I'm going to avoid it completely. I'm not going to go anywhere near it so that I'm not tempted. That's wise. But to say, God said, you shall not go anywhere near it. Now we're adding to God's word. 
and we create problems. So Satan caused Eve to doubt God's word. Uh, he made God seem overbearing. He even led Eve into adding to God's word in an attempt to protect it, but it's still wrong. Uh, and then the next Satan is a flat-out lie. You will not die. Satan knows that they will. <laughs> uh, but he wants to remove the, the warning of God's law, and he often does that with us as well. Oh, surely God's not going to punish you for that. It's such a little thing. Why would God punish you for that? He makes us think the same thing as well. Oh, God's not going to punish you just, just for doing that. You will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And then finally, he makes it sound like something that's good for us and even makes us get angry with God because God's keeping this good thing from us. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and of delight to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. So we've talked about Satan's tactics, but now we see the temptation of man, of our own flesh. And 1 John 2.16 talks about exactly what happened here. 1 John 2.16 reminds us that all that is, is in the world, the, the, um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John identifies all three things that Eve was tempted by. She saw that the tree was good for food, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the, the desire for those things that taste good, that feel good, that we like. And those things are good. They're created by God. Uh, they're good in the place where God made them to be, but they're not good when we misuse them or when we grab them or take them from our neighbor or in other ways uh, take what God has said, no, don't don't use that or don't take that. Uh, so the, our desire for things that are pleasing to our senses, that taste and smell and touch good. Now, the second one might seem similar, the lust of the eyes. Well, that also is pleasing to our senses, but of course that's in a little bit of a different way. Uh, you know, imagine the difference between clothing that is comfortable and feels good and the desire to, to wear clothing that's comfortable and feels good versus the desire for clothing that looks good and looks nice. Uh, those two things are often very, very different, right? Uh, the clothing that really looks nice is often not so comfortable. But both can be temptations. Not that it's wrong to look nice, but it can be a temptation to have nice things, and our desire to have things that look nice and to look nice ourselves can lead us to do things that are wrong. And so here both is going on. Uh, oh, this food is going to taste good. It's going to be a delight to my senses. Uh, it also looks so good. And, and humans aren't much better than fish. It's often been noted there that uh, fish are tempted by shiny things and bite into lures that are shiny and bright. And humans are often led astray and into temptation by things that are shiny and bright as well. Uh, diamonds are a, a great example. Ooh, look at how shiny they are. Uh, leads many people into very, very great sins for a rock that happens to be a little bit shiny. And then finally, the pride of life. Uh, our desire to be proud of ourselves, our desire to have something to brag about, our desire for other people to look up to us, that, that pride in this life uh, and in appearing to be good, uh, noble, wise, whatever, often leads us into temptation as well. Eve saw, in this case, that the fruit was good for knowledge. Uh, 
and Satan had lied to her and made her believe that if she eat it, she was she was going to gain knowledge. And in some sense, she did. She gained knowledge of evil, but it was a knowledge that she wasn't meant to have and wasn't good for her. So she's desiring knowledge, which is a good thing, but she's looking to gain it in the wrong way. God wants us to have knowledge. He wants us to grow in experience and wisdom, but he wants us to do it gradually. He wants us to do it in a way that is good. And he wants us to grow in knowledge of righteousness, not knowledge of sin. Uh, Eve grew in knowledge when she ate the fruit, but it was the wrong kind of knowledge. She also gave the fruit to her husband. That It's a fruit. It's not necessarily an apple. There's nothing in scripture that says it's an apple. Scripture doesn't say what kind of fruit it is. It's very possibly a kind of fruit we've never heard of because we don't have that tree around anymore, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate it, knowing full well what he was doing. Uh, the scriptures make that clear. He ate it anyway. The scriptures doesn't say exactly why he ate it, but the implication is that he wanted to please his wife. His wife has given it to him, and he didn't want to be left alone. He'd rather follow his wife into sin uh, than remain alone in righteousness. So he loved his wife, which is a good thing, but he put her first instead of putting God first. And the Bible reminds us that it's sinful to love the creature, the created thing, more than the creator. Eve was a gift from God. Uh, his first loyalty should have been to God, and his first love should have been to God who made her and gave her to him. But instead, he follows her into sin. What's the result? The result of and the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve are immediate and are terrible. Verse 7 through verse 13. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. So what are the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin? Immediately shame and guilt. And how often don't we feel the same thing ourselves? Uh, we do something we know we shouldn't, and we think it's going to be fun, we think it's going to, it's going to taste good or feel good, but the re immediate result is shame and guilt. And it's really not worth it, but we never learn. We keep falling into sin because we think, oh, this will be better, but it's not better. It just makes us feel shame and guilt. Uh, and that shame and guilt is like a weight around our shoulders causing all kinds of other problems in our life. Uh, other consequences are seeing anger, hatred, division, and discord. Uh, notice how Adam and Eve turn on each other and even turn on God. Before this, Adam supposedly ate the fruit because he loved his wife and, and was willing to follow her into sin rather than be without her. But following her sin, he immediately abandons her, throws her under the bus. It's, it's Eve's fault, he says to God. Now, there's no love there anymore. Sin causes nothing but strife and discord and problems in our life, uh, as it does here as well. Separation from God. Instead of looking forward with delight to God coming and walking with them like they did before, now they fear his presence and hide from him. And so many people these days as well hide from God, don't want to come to church, 
don't want to read the Bible, don't pray to God because they know their sin and their guilt and they are afraid to come before God. We, of course, know that the answer to that sin and guilt is Christ Jesus. And instead of hiding from God, we ought to expose ourselves, open ourselves before him, repent of our sins, let him wash away that sin so we don't have to feel that shame and guilt anymore and we don't have to hide from God. Finally, the consequences of our sin, uh, as we're going to hear, is that God himself is going to uh, pronounce judgments on them. That's coming up in the next verse. So sin, Jesus died for our sins and we get to go to heaven, but that does not mean that sin is without earthly consequences. Uh, sometimes there are very dire earthly consequences as well. However, the wonderful thing, the beautiful thing, the amazing thing is that despite how grievous the consequences of our sin are, God chooses to take those consequences upon himself. So let's get to that, God's response. Uh, we've seen Satan's tactics to get us to sin. Uh, we've seen what it is that lead, leads us into sin. We've seen the consequences of the sin. But now we get to the best part of the story. How does God respond to man's sin? Verses 14 to 19. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Therefore, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. What is God's response to man's sin? Well, first and foremost, way back in verse 8, uh, when God comes to confront Adam and Eve, he does not come in anger. He does not come storming down from heaven. He does not come with the fire and the thunder and the lightning and the wind, which is what we would expect. Adam and Eve have sinned grievously against God. And the one thing he asked them not to, uh, if it were a man, if God were like us, he would come storming down from heaven, but he doesn't. He comes walking, walking in the garden, in the cool of the evening. That simple verb, walking, carries with it so much grace and mercy of God, his patience, his forbearance, his desire to call us back to faith, his love for us, that he came walking and not storming in anger. So first of all, God responds to man's sin with patience, with love, with endurance. Secondly, he calls to Adam and Eve, where are you? Giving them a chance to repent of their sin, calling them to come out of their sin, to acknowledge their sin, to allow him to deal with it and to be forgiven. And he calls us as well. Where are you? When we sin, he calls to us. Where are you? What have you done? Confess your sin so that you may be forgiven. And then third of all, uh, when Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve kind of confess their sins, of course, they accuse each other. They make excuses for it, but they do admit that they sinned. And God's response to that, to that is, I will take the consequences of your sin. Uh, verse 15, he promises to send a savior. That's he himself who will come and be that savior between your seed and her seed. It's, it's G we often think of this as the father speaking, but it's not. It's Jesus speaking to them. And he him, is promising to come himself 
and bear the consequences of our sin. Very often, our sin affects other people more than it does ourselves. Very often, other people feel the hurt and the pain of our sin far more than we do ourselves. Uh, and that's, we really ought to stop and to think about that. Not what consequences my sin is going to have on me, but what consequences are my, is my sin going to have on others? And what hurt and pain is this going to cause them? In this case, God himself chooses to carry the burden of our sin and the weight of its consequences on himself. I will, he will strike your head. He's talking to the serpent here, right? And you will strike his heel. So the serpent is going to poison the coming Messiah, uh, and the Messiah will die. But in so doing, he will crush the head of Satan, destroying him and winning the victory for us who have been put under uh, under Satan's authority. Notice, I will put hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, Adam and Eve originally were on God's side, but now Adam and Eve are at enmity, at war with God, because they chose the serpent's side. God is going to reverse that. He's going to put enmity between the woman, between Adam and Eve and, and Satan. He's not going to put enmity between Adam and Eve, but on one side it's going to be Adam and Eve with enmity against Satan, which means that they're not going to be on Satan's side anymore. They're going to be back on God's side. He is going to remedy the problem. Nevertheless, sin does have its consequences, and that's what God talks about here next. For the woman, pain in childbirth, and you will be dominated by your husband. Notice how the consequences of God's sin touch on the very thing that was the pride of Adam and of Eve. What they were made to be and what they would have taken pride in before is now a, a burden and a sin to them. The woman was made to be a helper, a companion, an equal companion, but a companion to Adam, and she was made uh, to give birth to children. And both these things are now cursed because of her sin. Uh, childbirth is going to be painful, and that relationship between her and her husband, the husband is going to take advantage of it. And instead of using the headship principle in love for his wife, he's going to use it in selfishness, and she is going to suffer because of it. When God says he will dominate over you, he's not saying, he's, the, the Hebrew word here for dominate is different. Okay, uh, there are other, there are different words for rule. And like, for example, uh, Adam and Eve are to have dominion over the earth. And that word dominion there, it means to take care of. But here, the word means to rule in a sinful way, to abuse and make use of for, for his own selfishness. Now, God isn't saying that husbands should do this. He's not giving a command to husbands. Remember, he's talking to Eve. So no husband should take this and say, oh, therefore, I get to dominate my wife. No, God is saying, is warning Eve that because of sin, this is going to happen. And it's not a good thing that it happens, uh, but it is part of the curse of sin. Jesus reverses this curse in his death on the cross, and Paul makes a good point about that in Ephesians 5, the husbands are to use their headship, their authority to serve their wife, not to dominate them. Uh, so here we see directly how Jesus fixes uh, the curse of sin in this one particular way that husbands, that by his example, he teaches husbands not to misuse their authority but to serve, honor, and love their wives, to use their authority to do what's best for their, their wife instead of dominating them. Then Adam's curse is uh, the ground will be cursed. Adam was made to be a gardener, to be a farmer, to be a planter, to take care of the earth, uh, an overseer over the earth. 
And he's still going to do that, but now it's going to be painful and difficult. And it, the ground is going to be cursed for his sake. So he's going to make his bread uh, by a difficult living. The consequences of sin. Uh, even the, the punishments, even the curse that God pronounces is, however, still God's love in action. As we're going to see in a little bit later, it's God knows that if life is super easy, if there is no consequences to sin, that man will think that it doesn't matter and man will continue in his sin. And so the curses, the consequences of our sin are there to teach us to be ashamed of sin and what a terrible and awful thing it is. It's there to call us to repentance so that we turn from our sinfulness and live in Christ instead. Verses 20 to 24. Adam knew, named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of the skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and also take from the tree of life and eat and live and forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and east of the garden of Eden, he stationed cherubim with a flaming whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So the Lord made clothing out of the skins of an animal. Adam and Eve sinned, yet Adam and Eve are not the ones who die. The process of dying begins immediately. And so you could say that in that way, um, they died immediately the day they ate from the fruit of the tree. Uh, the process of death began. They, the physical death is not going to come for some time yet, but that process began immediately. But they themselves did not physically die that day. But who does die? Animals. God sacrifices the animals for the sake of man. It's man who sinned, but it's the animal that is killed. And that, of course, is a picture of Christ. It is man who sinned, but it is Jesus who takes upon himself the consequences of our sin and dies for us. And notice how it's no longer good for man to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life was there in the garden, uh, apparently to give Adam and Eve eternal life. But the tree, but they are driven out from that tree. And in fact, an angel and a flaming sword are there to guard the way. Interesting that this translation says an angel with a flaming sword. But the Hebrew actually says an angel and a flaming sword. Whether the flaming sword was actually in the hand of the angels or whether it was just kind of floating there somehow, <laughs> uh, separate from the angel, uh, e either interpretation is possible with regard to the Hebrew. But we are driven away from the tree of life. It is no longer good. Life is no longer good. Uh, death is now a necessity so that we can escape this sinful world and be brought into the new one, which, by which we, which is created holy and perfect, and by which we can be redeemed through the blood of Christ. Lord's blessings on your Sunday school lesson. Uh, I know these uh, first couple lessons here, um, these um, audio notes that I'm giving you are kind of long. There's a lot in these first couple <laughs> lessons. Uh, lessons upcoming uh, probably get back down to 15-minute audio notes. But anyway, I hope you find them useful. And... Give me an email or a phone call if you have any questions. Lord's blessings on Sunday.